0: Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami. This week's episode is part one of a two-part interview that we conducted at the 2017 Festival of Faiths in Louisville, Kentucky. I was able to have this incredible conversation with Joan Brown Campbell and Carmen Armstrong. You'll learn more about them in the context of the interview. The interview is conducted on location, so pardon the ambient noise, but it was a wonderful conversation and I know you're going to enjoy it. I'm at the 22nd annual Festival of Faith's Gathering in Louisville, Kentucky, a nationally acclaimed celebration of music, poetry, film, art, and dialogue with internationally renowned spiritual leaders, thinkers, and practitioners. the Festival of Faith promotes interfaith understanding, cooperation, and action. And it's organized by the Center for Interfaith Relations here in Louisville. I'm here under the auspices of Spirituality Health Magazine to do some interviews in the field with some of the presenters. And we have the incredible opportunity to talk to two amazing women, both of whom I can't call you friends because we don't know each other that well, but certainly you're my teachers. And uh, people that, that we have, I've talked with before, and it's just an honor to be with you. Reverend Dr. Joan Brown Campbell and Karen Armstrong. So, Reverend Campbell is a devoted activist for peace and social justice, who served 13 years as director of the Department of Religion at the historic Chautauqua Institution was the first ordained woman appointed as General Secretary of the National Council of Churches of Christ in the United States, in the USA, Director of the US Office of the World Council of Churches, and she co-founded what is today the National Religious Partnership on the Environment. Karen Armstrong is an historian of religion whose books have been translated into 45 languages, I can only dream of that. (laughs) In 2007, she was appointed by Kofi Annan to the high-level group of the UN Alliance of Civilizations with the task of diagnosing the causes of extremism. 2008, she was awarded the TED Prize and began working with TED on the Charter for Compassion, which was launched in the fall of 2009 and has become a global movement. Karin, Joan, thank you so much for sharing a few minutes with us on Essential Conversations. So, since you're really headlining the festival, and the festival's theme is compassion, let's just start by helping people understand what your core message is. So, we'll start with Karen. Karen.
2: When I got the TED Prize that you mentioned, uh, I was given a wish for a better world. And I had been disturbed by the fact that even though all the world religions emphasize the golden rule and compassion and have seen this as central to spirituality and ethics, when religious leaders came together, uh, they rarely mentioned it. They were always talking about uh, homosexuality or some point of doctrine or condemning this or that. And so I wanted to bring compassion to the core of, of Life. We, we got a lot of religious leaders together, Ted arranged it, and together we wrote a charter. There represented six of the major world religions, so it was a sign that on this we were all in agreement, and that uh, even though at the various religious traditions are often assumed to be at loggerheads, on this we were, could work together for, for a better world. Their challenge has been since then to implement it practically... And we're here in Louisville because um, the, it's be- going to become the center of our Compassionate Cities campaign, which is going now to uh, be the, the flagship now of our movement, the, the whole compassion movement. So, Joan, you want to jump in?
3: Yes, it, it's, um, working on uh, compassion is not an easy task. In some ways, it's a misunderstood word at its depth. People think of compassion often as kindness, and it is that. Or they think of it as uh, something nice, to be nice to people. And uh, Karn has really been my teacher as we have taken a look at just at the word alone and helped to remind people that at its depth, compassion is life-changing. And what Karin has often pointed out, it is also dangerous. Dangerous in the sense of risks worth taking. And I think part of what we've tried to do as we've focused on compassionate cities, we have really been, we have now over 100 cities around the world that declare themselves compassionate cities. And we even, now there's some work being done to put down the criteria. So you cannot just simply say the mayor of the city can't just say this is a compassionate city. It's now to be listed as a compassionate city, one must be serious about this in a variety of ways. And I think one of the challenges is the word compassion is not clearly defined, or perhaps it is irreverently defined. And made too easy. And uh, Karen, especially, has always talked to us about the danger of compassion.
1: So let me let me ask you both a question. Because you both talk about the golden rule mm. and its centrality to religion. So I, I wrote a book. I don't know which book it was, but not too long ago, uh, called "Games People Play: The Golden Rule and Why Nobody Follows It." Mm. It's not exactly the title, but that's the idea. And I went through the world's religions and said, okay, this is what they say in Hinduism, and here's how Hinduism doesn't do it. And here's what they say in Judaism, and here's how Judaism doesn't follow it. Why do you think that they, especially around women, I mean, because these religions are Iron Age, Bronze Age, and the the mentality is often still in in that framework. And here we're saying, don't do unto others what you would not want done unto you. And yet the way we treat women in most of these religions is horrendous. How can they, Promote a rule that they really violate almost unconsciously.
2: Well, they don't really promote it. Uh, that was my point. Uh, they <coughs> t- would often talk about anything but the, go- uh, you know, the golden rule. Um, my Catholic tradition, for example, we hardly mentioned it. It was very much more uh, accepting certain doctrines and you know theories of mortal sin and all this. And it, what, it was my studies that uh, made me see the importance of this because whatever topic I was writing about, whether it was a history of God or a history of Jerusalem or a history of fundamentalism, the material kept pushing me to this, to, to compassion, uh, as either the lack of it or uh, the struggle for it. And why do people not? Because people don't want to do it. Uh, people don't want to be compassionate, really. They, they they like to say, think of themselves as compassionate, but they uh, pre- often prefer to be superior uh, or see themselves in a, in a different category. Because, uh, and it, it's been slight. There's slight differences in 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 every uh, uh, tradition, but. The Confucian tradition, he, Confucius was the first person to enunciate the golden rule in, and have it written down. And his followers asked him, what do what we practise all day and every day? And what, uh, what is the central thread that runs through your teaching? And he said, shu, which means likening to the self. Look into your own heart, discover what gives you pain and then refuse under any circumstance whatsoever to inflict that pain on anyone else. He said, do not impose on others what you yourself do not desire. And so all day and every day, you're being asked to transcend the ego. Um, and, and for this Confucius, it was political. And th- this is a point too. Uh, the, his whole point was, uh, he was go- you spent his life going round to the various courts of China uh, telling rulers that they must uh, not impose on others what they would not like done for themselves. That was otherwise, he said, uh, we will destroy one another. And uh, so I, uh, that is never more true than it is today. Because unless now we implement the golden rule globally so that we treat all peoples and or ensure that all peoples, whoever they are, whether we like them or not, are treated as we would wish to be treated, uh, the world is going to be unviable. Um, and the, the res- resentment has uh, accelerated. Um, and what, what... The terrorism that we're seeing now um, is simply the fact that the state has lost the monopoly of violence. Uh, the, uh, up until fairly recently... The state, in order to be a state, had to control all the violence, have all the weapons at their disposal. In the past, all the people suppressed by the state, that would have been 90% of the population before the uh, modern period, would love to have uh, committed terrorist acts against their rules, but they had no violence. They had no means to do so. Now, with the easy availability of weapons, and right here in the United States, it's tremendously easy to lay your hands on weapons. Uh, the, and the ease of travel, uh, more money, and easy communicate and advanced communications have, means that the state no longer has the monopoly of violence. And people who feel oppressed or grieving, have a grievance are able to, uh, to challenge us in this way. But if they had been treated in a more decent manner, uh, this might not be happening. So I want to come back to that for a second bit. Sounded to me like,
1: John, you
3: wanted to jump in? Well, I think one of the problems we have with the word compassion is that people see it as being nice. Um, There's very little study, or even acceptance, if you you press people a little on why do you believe the golden rule? They actually do better if you say, what do you mean by the golden rule than simply by the word compassion. Compassion is often, people receive that word as saying, well, I'm nice to my neighbor, I'm good to my children. I mean, the sacrificial nature of it is really, I think it's deeply misunderstood at that level that this is not something about being nice or making uh, things better uh, for people that may already have better, but the fact that it requires a certain amount of sacrifice and a high degree of risk. And I think we very rarely think of compassion as risky, Uh, and yet I think at its depth that is what it is. Um, I've always been a little bit interested in why, if you say compassion, you get one response. If you say the golden rule, you get a different response from people. Um, and so, what's the difference? To, to some degree, the golden rule is thought of as a rule. Therefore, it's thought of as a command or something that you ought to do. People seem to interpret it with a little more depth than the word, even if you look it up, if you look up the word compassion. And I've done a fair amount of work in Cuba in the last well 20 years of my life and I wanted to work with them on compassion and compassion does not translate from their standpoint into Spanish in a way that it does almost everyone I talked to said well it translates to mean being sorry for or feeling uh, sad about something. Discover a new relationship and approach to life
0: through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn
3: more today at eomega.org slash thrive. It doesn't drive someone to say, what I've learned from Karen Armstrong is that what you have to see in it is, it's a command to change something, to take away what it is that creates the problem and interject something of re- of reverence and of, of curing what it is that creates the problem. But uh, I think one of the difficulties in talking about compassion is the misunderstanding of the meaning of the word.
1: Do you think both of you, uh, or maybe what role does religion play in this? You know, it seems to me that religion is more part of the problem than is part of the solution. That I know you're saying that if people have been treated better by whatever powers that you know they live under, uh, maybe we wouldn't have the terrorist issues that we have today. But but I see it somewhat differently. I, I see it. I don't think we can take the religion out of terrorism, whether it's. In Islam or Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism in Myanmar that if it wasn't for a specific theology that someone drew from the tradition I'm not saying it's the core theology but if they couldn't hook it to God in some way and then hook God to the state that or, or to politics that without that it's I think it's more difficult uh, Without subsuming the individual to something greater, either you know, communism or the state or, or God or something, it's much more difficult to get people to be terrorists.
2: I'm not sure that that's true.
1: Okay, that's what I'm
2: asking. Um, uh, no, I mean if, if there've been uh, this is the latest fashion, is 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 Islamic terrorism, but if you look back at the '60s, uh, '50s, '60s, the Baader Meinhof uh, organization, right. this was highly secular um, and leftist. And then there were the, before that you had, it was the Russians who invented suicide bombing, for example. Uh, Russian um, revolutionaries uh, not activated by religion. This is just the latest. Yeah,
1: so I I should have been more careful. So, not religion specifically, but some ideology beyond the individual that they can surrender themselves to, and that motivates them to.
2: I don't know. You see, I think we've got to reckon with the violence in the human psyche. Uh, We're a violent species. Uh, We came to, uh, for the largest part of our uh, evolutionary history, Uh, we were professional killers as hunter-gatherers and using our big brains to fight (coughs) and kill animals much bigger and more powerful than ourselves. And on, and before the invention of agriculture it was, we depended upon killing and that is, is especially inbred in the male sex and if you look at these absurd games that male men play, football and um, rugger uh, where they hurl themselves at each other and, uh, and young men throughout history have been drawn to the battlefield now, I was talking to a, um, a military uh, philosopher in Britain, um, and he said the greatest uh, incentive to, that draws men to the battlefield has been boredom, a sense of the utter triviality of life, a sense of meaninglessness. And forensic psychiatrists, who are not liberal softies like me, but uh, one of them was a, a one of the chief of these was a, a former CIA a, a officer. Uh, And he interviewed all the people involved in the 9-11 plot who were incarcerated in Guantanamo Bay. And his findings showed that religion had very little to do with it. Uh, Only 20% of these people had a regular Muslim upbringing. Uh, Others uh, were either new converts who knew very little about the the tradition, like that's what the the, the recent bombing in um, the recent terrorist attack in London it was a convert with a criminal record hardly a devout Muslim um, and or uh, else they were self taught uh, two young wannabe jihadists left Birmingham in the UK uh, to go to Syria and they'd ordered uh, a book from Amazon called Islam for Dummies which shows the depth of their understanding of the faith uh, or, or else they were not observant until they joined the movement. And he, and he said that the biggest cause of, of it was a sense of sense of pointlessness in life.
1: That, I mean, that's fascinating. I'm just going to push it one more time and see, see if there's something else we can say about it. When I look at, at Judaism, Christianity and Islam, just to focus on those, not at their best, but at their most political, their most tribal, I mean, their gods are
2: rooted in violence. All, I'm writing a book about scripture at the moment yeah. in all religious traditions. And all these scriptures have deal with violence. They have to deal with violence because it's part We're of life. We're violent. Yeah. We're violent. It's what, what they are. And uh, very often, uh, you know, the, these, the tribal ones, I was just writing about uh, the, 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 the early Jewish scriptures... Then, yes, Yahweh's a warrior god. Yeah. Um, and, but uh, because they are fighting for their lives um, in the pre-state days. Um, and so... Uh, and, but you have it in India too. Uh, Indra, a very violent deity. Because that's what... These these Aryans live by violence, by stealing other people's cows and killing. Then they move in They move, But violence is part and parcel of our lives. And any kind of scripture or spirituality that ignores that is out in cloud cuckoo land. Well, then it's
1: like fairy tales, where like Grimm's fairy tales bring out the violence. So, Joan, you were talking about how difficult it is to cultivate this compassion. It sounds like it's almost fighting human evolution. Do you see it as a step in human evolution? I mean, we're still violent, so there must be something evolutionary... Uh, evolutionarily valid about our violence, and then compassion is pushing against that? Is it is it the next level of, of human evolution, or are you just fighting thousands of years of intrinsic human
3: violence? I, I think it's not uh, most people that you would talk to, just people that would attend a mosque, or people that would attend church, or Synagogue. I don't think that they think in these terms. I mean, or that deeply, or that uh, you know, either scientifically or or um, as students. It, it's more we're, we're trying to look at how do you address something that seems to be within us. And uh, to some degree, there's a high degree of, of protection within us. And how does that protection play out in the word of compassion? I mean, oftentimes I think people do not act professionally, uh, do not act with passion or compassion, uh, partly because it looks risky. And I think we're in an era right now where there's a low risk. Um, I I get very distressed at times. I lived through the civil rights movement and worked for Dr. King. And it seemed, at least to me, not maybe, maybe because I was younger, but I think not, people, particularly the clergy, I'm a Protestant, they were far more willing to take a risk now I see clergy being very careful. They have a job to worry about. They're worried about how people might feel about something. When in the middle of the civil rights movement, people had a feeling, not all people, but there was a very large number of people that were saying, this is wrong. This is part of our history. We have to do something about this. We didn't say compassion would be give you a direction, but it was the way the response came and now what I see is a lot, of, a lot of caution about doing anything that is risky. Might risk your money, might risk your life, I mean, um, and it's getting worse, not better. This whole idea that if you step outside of your house, you might get into trouble. I mean, it, it's um, disturbing to me. Now, I don't know that this is true in any country. Oh It's, it's a certainly true here. Yeah. Uh,
2: I, 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 I think so. There is definite kind of caution and constant self-protection, uh, insurance, and constant preoccupation with one's health and jogging. and It's a search for immortality in a way.
1: Well, there's an interesting theory now that <clears throat> science uh, maybe is on the threshold of letting us live longer and longer. That's a terrible thought. And, well, one of the things they're saying will happen is, if they can get it to the point where you only die from an accidental thing, no one will leave the house, yes. because it's too risky.
3: Or <laughs> well, I love children. My, my my children said, well, if we lived forever, we'd never get any money that we inherit from our parents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You've been listening to the first part of a two-part conversation. That I had at the 2017 Festival of Faith in Louisville, Kentucky, with Joan Brown Campbell and Karen Armstrong. We're gonna broadcast the second half of the conversation next week. I hope you'll tune in. Thanks for listening.
0: Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave.